welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip Podcast. I am Pastor Hayden, and join to my right. No, I'm in front of you. To my right front of me is Pastor Evan. Pastor Hayden's pretty tired. It's been a day. Uh, at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this Equip podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Pastor Evan, we started a brand new series and a brand new chapter in the Gospel of Matthew entitled Trials and Triumph, and this sermon was entitled The Temptations of Jesus, and it covers the first four no, four, four? The first, first, the fourth chapter, the first eleven verses in the fourth chapter of Matthew. What are the first eleven verses of Matthew all about? Well, to sum it up, uh, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and then the devil came and tempted him in three different ways. But then Jesus overcame Satan, where we failed, and in verse eleven. The devil left him, and in the Gospel of Luke talks about this, to wait for another opportune time. And behold, angels were uh, came and ministering to him. Well, Pastor Hayden, as you mentioned in the sermon, the danger of this sermon is to directly apply true biblical truths, but out of context to the passage. Hmm. It is true that we need to trust God in his provision, mm-hmm. his timing, and his way, but that's not what the passage is trying to do. It's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So what is the main point of this sermon? Well, it's for us to recognize that Jesus is the only one who could consistently, successfully uh, withstand and conquer Satan's schemes and the temptation of our f- flesh uh, to withstand sinful proclivities. And simply this is it's, it's us and our need to correctly define the earthly mission of Jesus. That is, to for him to conquer sin in the flesh, conquer Satan in the flesh. And it's for us understanding this assignment to conquer Satan in the power of sin in our lives. And it's important because that's what this is all about. It is important for us to recognize that there are some things that we can apply through this that help us fight sin, but not apart from the work of Christ. And so this is all about the work of Christ. And by understanding it that way, and just as Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was able to conquer these things perfectly as the perfect man, we then, through the work of the perfect man Christ and trusting in him for our salvation, then also being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we too can walk in the victory of Christ over sin and Satan. This is such a good text. All right, Pastor Hayden, there are three themes of the text. First, uh, well, one, three of many. Let's just put yeah. it that way. There's more. Three to that, that we could cover. Yeah, there's more to that. You know, we'll tell you later. Ask us after the podcast. Three themes, Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden, mm-hmm. Israel tempted in the wilderness, and then Jesus being tempted. Uh, in the wilderness. These are the layers in which this text should be read from. Yes. So why is it important, if you need a deep dive, Compass, re-listen to the sermon, why is it important that we don't forget and isolate this event, like, oh, this is Jesus and Satan, and not forget the, the layers happening here? Because the reason that this happens at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and its literary function is to show Throughout history, man has failed in the same areas that Jesus is about to be triumphant. 
And so we have to see Adam failed in these exact situations. Israel failed in these exact situations. You and me failed in these exact situations. And Jesus is going to prove faithful to the will of God in all of these situations, thus proving not only that he is the Messiah to come, but that he is sufficient to conquer sin and to be our perfect sacrifice in our stead. Awesome. So diving into the text now, uh, your first point, the first four verses of Matthew 4 is to trust God over our feelings, or you know, your feelings was the point. Um, with that, you need to understand really how did Israel and Adam fail. Um, you weren't able to dive because you know time was a limit. How did Adam and Israel fail in this first temptation where Jesus succeeded? So that so that we can understand ways, practical ways to overcome this. But how did Adam and Israel fail, and how did Jesus succeed? Well, you have... God making the promise to Adam, and Adam, he gives him he gives him everything, and he says there in verse sixteen of chapter two, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." It gives him everything, but this one tree, and the knowledge it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says, "You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die." So there's the objective, propositional truth of God, the promise of God laid out in Scripture. And you're left with one chapter later in chapter 3, and you have have the serpent, you have Satan tempting the woman, not apart from her flesh, but in line and in concert with her fleshly desire. Because it says here, uh, when the serpent asks, Eve, he says, he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said, well, we may eat of the fruit, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, well, God was, or Satan was twisting scripture like we're going to see in a minute from point number two. And it makes it seem like, oh, it could be the right thing to do to do this. Uh, Because, of course, we want to be more like God. It never hurts to be more like God. Don't we want that? Uh, And it says, so now the woman has now been manipulated through the twisting of Scripture. And now her flesh, her sin, is her her sinful flesh is now coming to the surface in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now her own appetite and her own desire is taking over, and that it was delight for the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. All all statements that are describing her feelings and desires over the objective propositional truth of God. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Therefore they failed the very tenets and commands and promises of God all within two chapters of the first book of the Bible. And then you have Israel doing the same thing over and over again. I can find um, a milu of uh, different examples in Scripture when, I mean, I just think of Moses on the mountaintop at Mount Sinai, and between the time that Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days with God, 
uh, by the time he comes back down, you already have Israel acting a fool and making gods. And they actually broke like almost all Ten Commandments in one shot. In one shot. And it's like, okay, there again, they were like, well, did God forget about us? Did Moses, is he dead up there? I mean, when I guess we got it now, I'm, I feel, I'm just so concerned. I'm so worried. I, you know, I, I got my own needs. I got to do my own thing. And I'm trusting my own feelings over the propositional objective truth of God's word. And that's where they always got into the problem. And that's where we always get into the problems. Because you have feelings and they're valid because they're actually there. They're valid in the sense that they are real feelings. But we do not make decisions based on our feelings because our feelings are not God. God is God. And so although my feelings are real, it doesn't mean that our decisions must be based on feelings because feelings do not and are not able and should not be able to dictate what we do with our lives. So with that, the other question I had was, you know, what are three practical ways, and actually you wrote them as down as application, that we can overcome our real feelings to obey God? To yeah. obey God despite our feelings. Yeah, I mean, the first thing you need to do is entrust your circumstances within the path of obedience to the will of God and to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life as a Christian. This means that you need to, just like Jesus in, in his circumstance, and his circumstance was, you realize, in the path of obedience to God, uh, and within that, knowing that he was right in the middle of God's will, he obeyed the will of God despite what his feelings were. He was hungry. He was tired. It would have been nice to have some bread made out of those rocks, but it wasn't the will of God. It was a will of God for him to trust in the provisions of God and not trust in the temptations and the feelings of his flesh. And so therefore he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to walk him in obedience, uh, not only in the wilderness, but throughout his whole life. And then secondly, we need to discern how our feelings or our appetites could be misguiding us. I mean, there are a lot of times where my feelings are misguiding me, and it'd be really important for me to be able to uh, detect when those things are happening and to be able to look at some proclivities that I have, maybe some patterns in my life where, you know, what, when I'm tired, I tend to sin more because I'm tired and I, or or if it's, uh, yeah, because I, I lose self-control when I'm tired because I'm tired and, you know, I just don't have the energy. Well, right, but it isn't based upon your power that you fight sin. It's based on the power of the Holy Spirit who's working in you. Or you're one of those who you failed and you failed and you failed. So you're like, well, what does it matter if I live for the Lord, but I keep failing. And so my failure makes me want to sin more. It's like, well, this isn't about your failure. This is about Christ's victory. And so you see how your feelings may always lead you and guide you to do something contrary to the will of God, but your understanding of the will of God is always going to guide you into conformity with God's will and his promises for the life of the Christian full of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we need to examine the scriptures for direction concerning God's will in our circumstances. You should have a basic understanding of the will of God as a Christian, and you should have that through Bible reading, through study, through sitting at a church that's teaching the Bible faithfully. Uh, but we're going to always grow in that, and we should always grow in that. And we get nuances to understanding how to live faithfully as Christians through the continual uh, examination of the Word of God. And what we do is when we examine Scripture, we're like, okay, because you're being you're being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit is illuminating the Scriptures to you. It's you just understand through examining Scripture that you understand God's will in so many ways, and in all of your circumstances, you can submit to the will of God because you know God's promises, just like Jesus knew the promises of God, even though His flesh was weak. And we can know, even though the flesh is weak often, we can know the will of God and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain our lives within the will of God. And so we can trust that 
we will be faithful because Christ is faithful. So with the word of God, it leads, leads into point number two. Don't abuse God's word. Well, Pastor Hayden, a couple questions for us. You know, what, are, what habits put us in danger of abusing God's word? There's a lot. Manipulation, uh, your will over God's will. Uh, what are some practical habits maybe when you're meeting with the, someone for counseling or talking to someone in the church or just on the street and say, I, I love God's word and you I see these habits? I, I Jesus. That's a big one. What is I said Jesus? Hermeneutically, I said Jesus. What is hermeneutics? Well, <laughs> I said Jesus is like, is, is reading yourself into the text without understanding what the text is all about. You're not David. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not David. David's David. And there are applications of David's life that could be applicable to you. But you can be abusing God's word by, I mean, I can just imagine uh, when when Jesus goes to Peter and saying, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail on it, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you do, you know, I'll give you the authority to do all these things. And then you say, that's me. Those things are for me. You're reading yourself into the text, and who's that text about? Peter, the apostles, the apostolic secession of the mission of taking the gospel and taking the church and, and building the church. That was not, it's not about you. It's about the apostles. So I said Jesus is a big one. Uh, you uh, misreading the text and just misunderstanding the Bible in general will lead you to apply it in ways that are abuses. But really, you manipulating is, is another way that you abuse God's word. You take a text and you try to get it to say what you want so you can do what you want. And a lot of people are at risk of doing that. And we got to make sure that we're not using God's word as a way to get our way, but we're using God's word so that God gets his way in our life. And maybe a helpful sign, Compass, and Pastor Hayden, please build on uh, whatever I say here. Sounds very self-serving, but <laughs> yeah. please build upon the please, foundation please, I'm laying uh, upon. Please finish what I'm saying. <laughs> but no, and here's a helpful sign to know, am I abusing God's word? Is to, when you quote a scripture to someone or to yourself, slow down and ask, is this really what it means? Like a very famous popular passage. When you know when two or three are gathered, you know, this is when Jesus is present. Like, well, Jesus is always present. He's omnipresent. He's talking about church discipline. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's actually applying the passage correctly. And, you know, Pastor Hayden, is there anything uh, you want to add to that uh, before we jump into a practical way to make sure we, our interpretation of scripture is correct? Yeah. And we're not, uh, the goal isn't to be so afraid to talk about the Bible that you just say, I give up, I can't talk about the Bible. But there should be a reverence and a respect and a deep desire to make sure that when we are reading Scripture, we're reading it correctly. You hope that your pastor is doing that. As a matter of fact, you ought to be choosing your home church based upon that exact fact. Is the Word of God being rightly handled and divided accurately? And in the same way, you should have that respect and reverence in your own life that you're applying Scripture correctly accurately. And the way to do that, as you explained, was to tan, to get outside. No, I'm just kidding. To, <laughs> to talk through the then. You can tan outside. You can tan inside. You can tan in the dark with Ooh, a flashlight. There you go. Uh, or with night vision goggles. Um, those are expensive, it turns out. I had a night vision monoculars once. Nice. It wasn't super great quality, but I could oh. see in the dark in my deer stand. There you go. All right. Well, it's the then, the always, and the now. And how can this helpful and simple tool, Pastor Aiden, help us make sure that our interpre- interpretation of Scripture is God's interpretation of Scripture? Yeah, when we read Scripture, we always understand that there's a context, there is a historical 
context, a literary context, a grammatical context uh, that is that's going on in that situation. It, even as the writers are writing about it, they're using a particular genre. They're talking about a particular time in history where things were actually going on. Uh, particular to that moment in history. And so it's important as we're reading the text that we understand what in the world was going on then. Why are we fleeing Egypt? I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know what we're running. Yeah, what are we running from? You know, uh, you know, what in the world was going on then that gave the opportunity and the, the, the situation for God to speak the way that he did in that moment? Uh, and within that, there's going to be this thing that we call a biblical principle, and it's called the always. There's something that was going on then that there's a principle we can take from it that is always applicable. Uh, if we take, uh, give, shoot, shoot me one. I'll, I'll try to do it off the top of my head. Point number two. Huh? What? This is point number two. That's what you're doing. Don't abuse God's. No, no, no. Give me like an example in scripture to like, to, what is the always principle in something in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament Passover? Okay, Passover. So Exodus. Well, yeah. Do you mean do you mean the Passover celebration? Or do you mean the actual Passover event? Ooh, Passover event. Okay, Passover event. What are we doing here? Well, what's the point of that? Well, the always of that is there was there was a need for justice to be given by God in the midst of a sinful situation, and so therefore the last uh, the last curse or the, the better word for that is the last uh, plague plague over Egypt was that the justice of God was going to be poured out because of the disobedience of Egypt and the people in the land and that the firstborn of all all living organisms would die if the blood of a slain lamb was not placed over the doorposts and for everyone who had uh, uh, the blood of the lamb over their door, doorposts that is they obeyed God and they uh, had a covering or they had a uh, a substitution, that there was a substitution of the firstborn's blood with the blood of the lamb, then therefore they would be saved because they obeyed God uh, by submitting to a substitutionary atonement. Oh, that, what's the always principle there? That God uh, has desired to, in Christ, give us a substitutionary death, that if we would trust in him, knowing that judgment is coming, knowing that justice will be served to all creation that doesn't obey God, that we could have... Uh, liberation, and that we could have salvation from that justice through the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. And that is the principle that you see from there. So then what is the now? The now is you need to have the blood of Christ covering you so that when the time of God's justice to be poured out on the world, you will have the substitutionary atoning death of Christ over you so that when Christ comes, his judgment will pass over you just like it passed over all the homes that had the lamb's blood in Egypt. And to give you a little bit of an insight compass, I, mean, I know Pastor Hayden, you explained this to your life group and I explained it to my life group, is that this is what we do every time we preach. Yes, and hopefully every time you read the Bible. Every time we read the Bible is we as pastors that try to understand the then, try to figure out what is always true and how to apply it now for our particular church here in New Braunfels, Texas. Mm -hmm. And so that is the goal is that that's where we get our points is trying to t apply the the actual truth, the always truth in the text in mm -hmm. a short form. All right. Well, Pastor Hayden, your final point was when we understand the truth of God, we need to obey it. Or another way, point number three. Submit to God in all things. There you go. Submit to God in all things. So two quick questions uh, for the sake of time. The first one is, why is it important for us to remember 
that Satan will tempt us with things God wants to give us, but in the wrong order. Like like Christ, he was going to get the the nations. Mm-hmm. All authority was going to give into him, but he, there's an order, and Satan tried to tempt him with the order. Why is it important that to remember that? That's how Satan's going to tempt us in many ways. Yeah, there's a lot of good things. Even in the Life Group Leader podcast, we talked about sexual relations. I think that was a great example when it comes to the right thing in the wrong order. It's a gift to a marriage covenant. It's a gift to a man and a woman being married to enjoy one another in that kind of intimacy. It's a promise of God for that. It's it's a way that we are fruitful and multiply. It's a way that we enjoy one another and uh, become united in our intimacy with one another. But it's also something in the wrong order that is not only uh, unhelpful for our lives, it is a, directly against the will and commands of God. And so it's, it's a really good example for us to understand that there are a lot of things in our life that are in the right order, very wonderful gifts of God, but taken out of order and used illegitimately are outside of the will of God and his desire for our lives. And it's just like we see here, Jesus was always going to receive the kingdom of the world, uh, whether that was through him bowing down to Satan, which was illegitimate and would have been outside of the will of God, or by him submitting to God, uh, taking on the cross and the shame uh, and the sins of the world, uh, and then receiving all authority given to him by the Father because of his obedience to God, and then again receiving the kingdom of the world in proper order, legitimately. Awesome. Well, actually, two more quick things. Sorry, Pastor Hayden. First, there's going to be times, you know, Compass, that we're going to have to realize we are not submitting to God in certain realms in our lives, and we need mm. to do that. How, what counsel would you get w- 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 that you would give to someone? who's beginning to realize, or maybe their life group leader says, hey, you're not submitting to God in this thing. How? What should they do? What should their disposition be? Uh, humble in receiving biblical counsel, if indeed it's biblical. And so the question is, what does the Bible say about that? If someone's saying, hey, you're not submitting to God's will in that, well, what does the Bible say is God's will in that area? And so it's always say, well, what does the Bible say about that? And if somebody is genuinely bringing up the Bible in the Word of God, in concert with whatever's going on in your life, and you see, like, oh, you know what? You're right. That does say that I'm not supposed to do that, or that that isn't in the will of God. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I'm so grateful that you care about my soul enough that you would even bring this up, that you would have the boldness and the courage and the love for me to even bring that up and bring that to light, and I would love uh, to be able to walk in obedience to God in that area. And maybe if you don't know how, ask, how do I do that? I mean, the only time we're not willing to do that is in pride uh, and in an arrogance and a desire not to submit to the will of God uh, out of our own selfish desire to be right or to not have to be accountable to the Word of God or to faithful community. And so, Compass, I would encourage you, really allow God to examine your marriage, your parenting, your work, your recreation, and the things that you like to spend time on or mm-hmm. money on. Humbly allow God to examine that and submit to him. Yeah. Because as you preached on, you know, he said the angels would minister to him. Jesus knew it, well, he, the angels would minister to him. And they you, did. If he stayed in God's will. Yeah. And so we would encourage you. It might be painful, but it'll be good. And last quick thing, Pastor Hayden, maybe someone here is just discouraged because they're beginning to realize their life was so out of order that there seems pretty hopeless of like, there's no way I can develop new habits that are going to last, you know, in the lifetime and live to, you know, many yesterdays than tomorrow's I have ahead of me. What encouragement would you give them? 
Well, the work of Christ is the exact solution to the world's exact problem, that we were too messed up and too bad and too out of order for anything to get placed back into order and enter the work of Christ in its perfection and in his perfection, fixing the very things that we have got all out of order. And for you, if you are saved and you are regenerate, you have the Holy Spirit within you because of the work of Christ, uh, the, the surpassing power and worth of knowing God and his will is the work that's going to be in you. It is God who wills and works for his good pleasure in your life. And so you keeping in step with the Spirit, and what that means is as the Spirit reveals the Word of God to you, as you just say, yes, Lord, and take the step, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to do that, and change is going to happen. That's that's the wonderful thing that people have so, I think some people have so confused about the power of God, is that the promise of salvation is regeneration and sanctification. And so the promise is a changed life, a new nature, and you're going to be sanctified. There, there is really no other option. And so for you, it's taking God at his word and saying, yeah, the Holy Spirit does do the work of changing my soul. And it doesn't mean I sit on the couch eating potato chips. It means that I cooperate with the Spirit as he is conforming me into the image of Christ. Very well, Pastor Hayden. Thank you so much. And Compass, we hope that you'd go through these application questions and get ready for your life groups and let God use these to really conform you to his son's image. All right, we have the daily Bible reading spotlight, and this week we are going to be looking at Matthew 24 through 26, and this uh, is quite quite the section, the Olivet Discourse. It's a fun one. Yeah, and there is a lot, there's a lot to this, and uh, why don't we charitably go through these and help our church understand the next few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew in our daily Bible reading. All right, well, buckle up, Compass, because we are talking about the end times. And so slow me down, go to half speed, because it's going to be a wild ride, but actually pretty straightforward. In chapter 24, as a reminder, twenty-three, chapter 23... Uh, Jesus is talking about how he's looking at Jerusalem and weeping because they were not willing to take refuge in him. Um, and instead, uh, they are going to be rejected and, uh, and judged by Christ. And it leads right into the very beginning in the first two verses. They're talking of about chapter the, 24. Of chapter 24 of the temple being destroyed. As a reminder, Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. You know, they're look, The disciples were looking at the great stones and the building, and Jesus said, all of these will be destroyed, and, not, and every single one of them will not be left. And this was fulfilled in 70 AD by General Titus. Titus. <laughs> not to be confused with the... Pastor Titus in the book of Titus. Yeah, we know who you named your baby after. (laughs) A pastor, of course. And so this is where you need to slow down. The temple language ends here because it's very important to slow down when he sits down on the Mount of Olives, his future returning site, FYI, in the second coming. The disciples ask, when are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? So he's not talking about the temple. He's talking about something different. They're asking something different. And that is extremely important because then on, you're going to be talking about some great tribulation. Uh, The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. The abomination and and desolation that the prophet Daniel and Daniel chapter 9 and forecasts or prophesies and um, and, and also mentioned in Daniel 11 and cha- chapter 11 and chapter 12, this great tribulation that the end time is going to have, 
This is going to happen in the future. Yes, the temple is going to happen in the future, but the abominations and desolation and the, uh, um, the, the signs of the end of the age is a future time after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Because the point that Jesus is trying to get to is that the coming of the Son of Man will be sudden, like lightning coming from the east, and it shines as far from the west. And so essentially what Jesus is trying to say is that there's going to be signs. Not that he's trying to say it. He is saying We always work on not saying trying. That's bad. So Jesus (laughs) is saying, here are some signs to be on the lookout for of my coming. And to remember the lesson of the fig tree all the way back in Matthew 21. And the lesson is this, is that when you see all these signs, that you will know that that he is near Christ, his return, and at the very gates. And this is where it gets fun. This is where you need to slow down. Verse 34, this is where we need to be charitable. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now the question I'm going to ask you is, who is this generation? Now it is our, uh, our interpretation of tanning well that this generation is not talking about the generation living in Christ's time. It's talking about the generation that is going to be the future generation that will see and experience all the, the desolation and tribulation that is going to come after the rapture. If you have more questions on that, we can talk to Pastor Hayden and I. We love to try to explain that. So that this generation, many scholars that we love and other Christians believe that the generation is talking about the present generation of Christ. You know, we charitably disagree saying that Jesus is saying this future generation will see everything and then the that is that it's not going to span hundreds of years, but in the lifetime of that generation is when all that tribulation and all that is going to happen uh, from then until the millennial the millennial reign. kingdom of Christ's return. And so the reason why we move forward is because Jesus moves forward. He says the purpose of the reason I'm saying this is this in verse 36 concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, nor the son in his current human state, but for the father only. Essentially, he's trying to say, stop trying to guess. He is saying. Oh, sorry. (laughs) He is saying, stop trying to guess when I'm coming back and stay on mission. And that is the rest of you know, Matthew 24 and 25 right here. He explains how the days are going to be sudden, like the days of Noah. He gives... um, a parable of, uh, you know, talking about wise and faithful servants doing the things that the master wants them to do when the master returns versus the sinful and wicked servants doing what they want to do and getting drunk and beating up the other servants and facing the wrath of God. He's saying, just stay on mission. Because they weren't focused on the mission, and instead they were focusing on their own will and their own desires, not understanding the Word of God. And by submitting themselves to their flesh and their own will, they really missed out on when Jesus was coming back because they weren't prepared and they weren't ready. And then God and Christ came back like a thief and they were not ready. And Jesus is trying to counsel his disciples and even counseling us now to say, hey, it's coming and it's going to be soon, but you just focus on what your task is, which is mm-hmm. to make disciples. So that's the purpose of the parable of the 10 virgins in chapter 25. You prepare immediately for the second coming, but anticipate a lengthy delay. Just be prepared. And then the parable of the talents, the importance of faithfully in res- faithful living and responsibility during this lengthy delay of like, this is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. We have a stewardship until Christ's second coming, or at least the signs where 
back to the fig tree real quick. When the leaves are budding, they know, oh, here comes the fruit. You know, the leaves are starting to bud. Okay, time, it's time to come. The, the tree is going to produce fruit. And so there's a time coming when these signs happen. It's like the budding leaves of the time to come. And then finally, he ends with a very sober parable, the parable of uh, the sheep and goats, and the prep, you know, talking about the preparation for Christ followers of how they need to live with other Christ followers kindly and compassionately. He expands upon what he said earlier in Matthew 24 between faithful servants versus wicked servants. Faithful servants are going to serve one another. They're going to be kind to others. Wicked servants are going to be for themselves, and then they're going to be realized they were a goat the whole time and not a sheep. And so that is the point of Matthew 24 and 25, and that is my counsel to you, is that you might spend all day trying to understand, which we should try to understand what's going to happen, but make sure that we're focusing on the always point right here and applying it now to say, okay, but God calls me to be ready now and to fulfill my mission to make disciples until he calls me into his presence. And then landing this week, we begin the passion of Christ, the passion week, the beginning of the climax of the story where Jesus is finishing these things and he begins the uh, preparation for the Passover meal he's going to have with his disciples. This is when Mary uh, comes in. She's unnamed in Matthew, but she's named in Luke. Mary comes and, you know, anoints his feet and um, is preparing him for burial, as it says in verse 12. And then also the preparation of his betrayal. The Judas was, you know, behind their back, you know, uh, being paid to betray Jesus. And then right after that betrayal, it leads right into the Passover meal. And the one detail I want to make sure that you notice is in the Passover meal, you have the wine, you have the bread, but there's there's a lamb, but there is no lamb. In the Passover, you're supposed to have a lamb, but in this Passover, there is no lamb. Why? Because Christ is the lamb, the one that Pastor Hayden talked about earlier, to say he is the one whose blood will cover you from the judgment of God. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we happen to actually take as a church today, you know, Pastor Hayden. Mm. And so this, this institution of the Lord's Supper is his sacrifice is going to seal the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31, and provide the forgiveness of sins that Jeremiah 31 talks about the blood of his covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, that's his name, Jesus, which is Joshua, which means God saves and how he's going to do it by the forgiveness of sins. And he's not going to drink it until he comes back in the millennial reign. And so any, any uh, points on the Lord's Supper, Pastor Hayden, as you taught on, taught on this briefly? That's why it's important for us to remember uh, both the work of Christ, like we talked about in, today in the Passover and, and celebrating the Passover, the Lord's Supper, uh, examining our life in, in, in relation to the work of Christ and how there is a reality between our uh, obedience to God in Christ simply because we're acknowledging the fact that our sin put Jesus on the Christ. So why would we continue living in that sin, especially when we have been apportioned the Spirit in our life to conquer sin through His work, and then also with that joy that we are ought to have, knowing that Christ isn't going to drink this again until He uh, drinks it with us anew, meaning that He has prepared and planned a time and a place for us to go enjoy this with him anew in his Father's kingdom. You can't forget about those things because they're directly tied to the promise of Jesus being the Passover lamb and for him coming back to gather his church. 
So when Jesus finishes the Lord's Supper, I love it. They sung a hymn. Mm, as they should. And uh, they went out back to the Mount of Olives, and this is where um, the, the, temp- the last temptation, well, the last temptation, but one of the big temptations of Christ happens. He, he predicts that they will, the disciples will fall away, and that's the fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7. And then he pr- prays in Gethsemane. That's a fun word to say, by the Gethsemane. way. Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And I want you to notice, there's a cycle that happens three times. Jesus says, hey, pray for me, they fall asleep. Pray for me, they fall asleep. And so there's a little fun little, you know, you know, uh, three-layered thing that happens throughout Scripture. You know, three is a big, important number. Three times they fall asleep, and he, he wants them to pray with them. Um, but I want to make sure... Well, that, that, and that's important, too, you know, and, and, and at least as we look at the whole picture of the gospels is these disciples just were not the cream of the crop you know they wouldn't they couldn't even they didn't have the strength and power to do the things that god was asking them to do until pentecost and that's important because it's at that point they become a force uh, and the reality is is like they can't even pray with christ as he's about to be crucified but through the power of the holy spirit they then had the they didn't have power to go do the work of god and that should be an encouragement to you as well and so in this last temptation, Christ is asking God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And when you underline verse 42, he says, my father, this if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Essentially, Christ had to die. Mm-hmm. Sin must be atoned for. You know, Jesus could not have saved us any other way. This had to be the only way, and it's right here in Scripture. So take that away as you're reading this and be thankful for God to say, I'm going to follow through through the only way that I can redeem my creation. And then landing real quick, we have the betrayal of Jesus, you know, Jesus willing for this plan to be fulfilled, hence why he told Peter to, to stop chopping ears off. And he's led to trial with the, before Caiaphas and the council. And this is two quick things you need to know. First, the identity of Jesus is revealed, but they are so blind and hearted by, by sin. God is literally in front of these people. They have fake witnesses to come, and they cannot see because they love their sin, which is their pride. They want to be puffed up. They want to be in the places of honor rather than having God. And that's why they can't see him. And so when Jesus says, finally, he says, yes, I am God. He's quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7, 3, sorry, Daniel 7, 13. He said, you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priests understand what he is saying. And he tore his robe and said, this is blasphemy. And he said, they were gonna put, um, he deserves death. And they end this week with the weakness of the disciples with Peter's denial three times. Again, another three. Three times he denies Christ and it gets worse. You know, first he gets more mm-hmm. aggravated and angry and the, the people become a little you know, smaller. You know, as a little girl at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the end, he went out and wept bitterly after he denied, and there's two things I want you to notice. One, there's godly grief that's explained in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. And right after this, in chapter 27 and next week's DBR spotlight, we're going to see worldly grief explained and see Peter's godly grief. And then finally, as Pastor Hayden alluded to, I want you to make sure you bookmark this and connect it to Acts 2 when you see this man is weak without God. But at Pentecost, when God is inside Peter, Peter is a force to be reckoned with, and he preaches to over 3,000 people saying, this Jesus you killed 
and then people were cut to the heart and repented and placed their trust in Christ. So I hope that was an encouraging uh, DBR spotlight. You know, Pastor Hayden? All right, we have some announcements. Remember, our Students Disciple Now for 6th through 12th graders starts on February the 17th and goes through Sunday the 19th. Registration is open, and pricing for the first two students in a family are $60. Each additional student after that is $45. This price is valid until February the 8th. After that, all student pricing will be $75 a student. We want you to get the best price, so we want you to register as soon as possible for that. We have our men's fellowship this Saturday, February the 11th at 9 a.m. We want to encourage every man to come together here at our church to fellowship and uh, be able to divide the word of truth together in a group of men. We want to encourage you to be there this Saturday. We have our next session of Exploring Compass, February the 26th and March the 5th, right after the 11 o'clock service. If you have not registered for Exploring Compass, we would encourage you to do that now and join us on February 26th and March 5th. And finally, we have our monthly prayer night, February the 26th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. We want you to always prioritize our corporate prayer together as a church, and we'd love to see you there on the 26th at 5 and 6.30 p.m. All right, Compass Bible Church, we are grateful for the time you spent being equipped through this podcast. We look forward to all that God is going to do in your life and in our church as a whole. We look forward to seeing you guys next week. 